At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. My name is Kevin Bradford, and I'm the Global Outreach Coordinator here at the church. And it's always a pleasure and a privilege to be able to address this body. You know, my wife and I uh, have been back in the U.S. for just a few years after living overseas for a number of years, and we've uh, noticed that there is no lack of advice from people on how we should use our money. Uh, I don't know about you, but my mailbox is filled with offers from individuals, from companies. Um, My inbox is filled, and now I'm getting robocalls uh, multiple times during the day all with the idea of providing some opportunity that I just can't pass up. Well, I brought a few of them here today, uh, and they all start to blend one into another. Um, Dear Kevin, did you know that Bank of America loves you and has a wonderful plan for your money? You got this too, right? Hello, Kevin. Did you know that Bob Moore Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram loves you and has a wonderful plan for your money? Dear customer, did you know that American Airlines, no, I won't go any further. I think you get the idea. Lots and lots of opportunities. It would be uh, helpful at a time like this to have a guide, have a resource that could help me sort through the different offers, that would help me to determine which ones of them uh, offer the greatest benefit, a guide that would help me to proceed with confidence um, when I make a choice, and also a guide that would help me to evaluate whether or not the choices that I've made uh, are the best ones or not. The guide that I have in mind uh, would be helpful in a number of different situations, not just in my life, but in other people that I know. You could think, for example, of Susan. Susan's a young professional, mid-20s, has just started working at her first real job for an energy company in the city, and uh, she remembers being so excited when that first big paycheck came in, things that she'd be able to do. And she was thinking first... uh, it would be great to be able to support that couple that I went to school with that wants to go to the mission field. Well, time has passed, and it seems like the paycheck doesn't go quite as far now as it used to. Um, Susan had to go get a new wardrobe, first of all, an upgrade to look more professional. And now there's uh, rent for her apartment, there's car payments, and then she has to repay, repay her school loan. Uh, But the exciting thing in Susan's life is that uh, some of her uh, friends at work have asked her to go on a vacation this coming summer in Europe. And Susan's excited because she's never had uh, an expensive vacation like this before. And she's flattered that they would even think to ask her. Susan knows that there will be some challenges. Uh, She doesn't have the money even for the trip deposit, but she needs to give them word tomorrow when she goes back to work. 
So Susan's thinking about this opportunity that's before her. What should Susan say? It'd be great if Susan had a reliable guide for her money and her resources at that time. Or you could think about another person, uh, Bill. Bill's in his mid-60s, close to retirement. And Bill um, has worked at a lot of different things in life. Bill has never really had a high-paying job, but he's still managed to put a little bit of money aside in an IRA, and he's hoping that with that and Social Security, he'll be able to get through his retirement years. But right now, Bill is on his way to Oklahoma City to see a car. Um, He was never, as a younger man, he was never able to get the car of his dreams. Um, 1972 Ford Mustang Mach 1. But Bill was looking at Craigslist and just happened to notice one that was for sale. Great condition, 351 Cobra jet engine, front and rear spoilers, cherry red. And they're only asking 32000 Bill's pretty sure he can talk them down to twenty-nine. Well, he knows it would be a splurge, um, but he's figuring it's now or never. Wouldn't it be sweet to be driving that baby around? Well, Bill doesn't have the money uh, just lying around, but he's pretty sure he can get a loan from the bank. And if he needs to, he can cut back on his contributions to his IRA, maybe his contributions to church as well. It would just be for a little while. When Bill is on his way, he's thinking, if the car is in good shape, what do I tell the seller? What sort of an answer do I provide? Well, Bill could use a reliable investment guide at that point. Well, the guide that I have in mind uh, would be helpful not just with money, uh, but also with our use of time, the way we spend time. You know, time is money, right? Well, think about Tom. Tom's in his mid-40s and has done well. The father of one, I'm sorry, the husband of one, husband of one and father of three. The kids range from first grade up to early teens. And Bill is used, I'm sorry, Tom, Bill's the other guy, right? Tom is used to uh, providing, working long hours for his family. Tom, in fact, would do anything necessary to provide for his kids. He loves them very, very much. In fact, Tom's great desire is to provide for his kids some of the things that he never had when he was a boy. Tom had to deliver a paper route, and uh, while he was delivering the paper route, he was able to set aside a little bit of money and buy an old clunker. Um, But the thing never seemed to work even two weeks in a row. So Tom's thinking, I really want to buy for each one of my kids uh, a reliable vehicle, dependable, that they can use as soon as they have their driver's licenses. Tom also, after high school, he went to the community college for a couple of years, and then after that to the state college to finish his degree. But he's thinking that for his kids, he'd like to open up more possibilities. He'd like for them to be able to choose from a wider range of schools, maybe uh, out of state, maybe a private college. Tom would love to provide that for his kids. Well, lo and behold, his boss came to him the other day and 
proposed that Tom become the new regional representative for the company, a promotion. And Tom, first thought, I guess, was uh, it's about time. Second thought was uh, I'll be able to provide for the kids all the things that I want to give them. Well, Tom was thinking about it, and as the boss explained, it would require some uh, extra time, some travel, including out of the city. He'd have to take a few weekends each month. But the way Tom is figuring it, um, his oldest daughter barely speaks to him as it is. Um, she probably wouldn't even notice if he was gone a couple weekends a month. Tom goes back to work tomorrow. He needs to give his boss an answer. What does Tom tell them? He would use, he could really use a nice guide at that point on how to use his time and his resources. Well, as it turns out, the, the guide that I have in mind uh, has actually been given to us, and uh, we can look in the Word for the, the principles from the Scripture, which can provide uh, the direction that we need when we're faced with decisions like these. In fact, it was given to us uh, more than 2,500 years ago when um, one of the prophets in Israel was addressing the people He provided for them a guide, a resource that they could use when considering how to invest their own resources, their own energy, their own time, and see the greatest return. To describe a little bit how that that came about, I want you to think with me about a Jewish craftsman. Uh, He's probably one of the first people to hear about this guide from the prophet. And uh, this craftsman, let's call him Joab. Joab was born in Babylon, and he was the son of Jewish captives. Uh, His father, though, had been born in Israel and was taken captive by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Israel with his armies and had taken thousands of people away. Uh, They had besieged the city of Jerusalem during 18 months, and finally it fell. It was a horrible scene. But perhaps the worst thing about the whole situation was that uh, the temple of God in the center of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was like a dagger to the heart of their culture. Decades passed. The Israelites in Babylon learning to get by. But then a Persian king named Cyrus arose, and he conquered Babylon. And one of the first things that Cyrus did was he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. Nearly 50,000 of the Jews returned, including Joab. When they returned, uh, they were also given provision to be able to rebuild the temple. The, The Jews could not believe what Cyrus was making possible for them. It was an answer to their prayers. The Jews went back, arrived in Palestine, and they began the work. They they linked arms and began working hard, and there was a lot to be done. Uh, They had to clear the land, repair the foundation, construct a new altar. But at this time, everything was exposed. It was exposed not just to the elements, but also to the attacks of their enemies. And the Jews uh, tried to withstand these attacks, but finally the work came to a halt. And it stayed that way for 16 years. 
Now, Joab was doing pretty well at this time um, because he was a skilled craftsman. If you could describe it, Joab could build it out of wood. And there was a lot to be done. Uh, with so many people returning to Israel, uh, there were lots of projects, lots and lots. So Joab was able to get back on his feet, help his family move into a nicer neighborhood of Jerusalem. And uh, as they, they found a, uh, an abandoned house there, uh, they thought, well, it's got potential. It's kind of a fixer-upper. Uh, but a couple that he knew gave him some advice on some things that he could do. Well, I, I'm not going to go there. I, I'd, I'd like to. You know the couple, probably. Uh, Chippekiah and his wife, Joanna. Uh, they gave Joab some advice. Their, their primary advice was to put some wood paneling on the walls. So uh, Joab did that. And pretty soon the neighbors were all raving about it. They all wanted wood paneling in their houses. So Joab was just, he was flush with work. He had more than he could handle. Life was pretty good. But he remembers that uh, one, of the time, one of the evenings after he and his crew had finished one of their projects, they'd gone to downtown Jerusalem, and they were there because of the celebration of the new moon feast. And in the middle of this feast, an old man stood up. And as he stood up, he began to prophesy. Well, this is the first prophecy from the Lord in the entire time since the Jews had returned from exile. So it was so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. And as Joab listened to the message from this prophet, he realized that it wasn't just a message for the people, but it was a message for him. When he returned home that evening, Joab knew exactly what he needed to do. He knew exactly how he should invest his time and resources because the prophet had given this guide to everyone that was present there. Everyone that had ears to hear should have gone home with the message. The prophet's name was Haggai. The prophet Haggai in our Old Testament, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Haggai. It's just a short book, just two pages in my Bible. I see people looking for the index. Uh, Haggai is the next, to the next to the last book of the Old Testament. It's, if you find Matthew, turn a few pages to the left, you, you might run into it. It's between the Z prophets, the Zephaniah and Zechariah. So Haggai's right there towards the end. Haggai gives an interesting message to the people because he describes... Uh, actually, there's four messages in the entire book, and the longest of these in chapter 1, uh, we'll only go through about half of it, uh, just the first eight verses. But in these verses, Haggai gives us three principles that can guide our use of time and money. It's, this is not a complete investment guide, okay? Uh, so if you're thinking... Or is this the answer to everything, every question? It's not. Uh, but these are reliable principles. And if we use these as cornerstones as we, go, as we proceed, we'll do well. This is also not a get-rich-quick scheme that Haggai is presenting. Uh, he's talking about lasting and eternal rewards that we can have as we invest our time and resources. But I will tell you this, that millions of people have followed these principles, and millions attest to the fact that they work. 
Well, as we look through these principles, these three principles from the prophet Haggai, um, each of them begins with the letter A. The letter A. The first one is found in verses 1 through 4. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read verse 1, but it just sets the setting. It gives us the time that Haggai presented his message, and it tells us who his audience was. And the two names that you should pay attention to here in the middle of the verse, it says uh, Zerubbabel. There's a good child's name. Zerubbabel. And then just after that, Joshua. Well, Zerubbabel was the chief civic authority in the land. He was the governor. And Joshua was the high priest, so the chief religious authority. And they were the primary audience that Haggai was addressing at this time. Well, let's pick up the reading in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in, in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, first thing I need to do, I want to set some of you at ease here because I want to point out one of the things that these verses do not say. They do not say that living in panel houses is wrong. They do not say that having nice things is sinful. In fact, they don't say that going to Europe on a vacation, they don't say anything about uh, getting a promotion at work, they don't say anything about even owning a muscle car, right? These verses talk about an alternative investment plan that may yield greater benefits. So as people think about how to invest their time and resources, Haggai, like a good advisor, he's presenting some options here. He's saying you can make your choice, but think about which would be the best choice in your case. Well, the, the thing that I see here in these, these three verses is the question of priorities. Priorities. Uh, Haggai doesn't mention the word priorities, but he does uh, pretty clearly allude to that. You can see in verse 2 that he talks about this people says the time has not yet come. And then in verse 4 again, he says with a rhetorical question, is it time for you yourselves to live in these houses, right? So when Haggai is talking about the use of time, he's really talking about uh, the priorities of the people. If you're a parent, you know how this works, right? Uh, Johnny, uh, it's time to get up, get ready for school. Uh, did you make your bed? Johnny, I, I didn't have time. Well, uh, mom and dad know that Johnny didn't have time because he was prioritizing other things, more sleep or something else, and he didn't necessarily prioritize obeying mom and dad. Or Sally goes to school and the teacher asks, uh, Sally, did you do your homework? I didn't have time. Well, the teacher knows, uh, Sally, you had time to send 100 text messages to your friends. Uh, sure, you had time, but this wasn't a priority for you. It wasn't that important. So Haggai is listening basically to excuses here. The people were saying, we didn't have time, but 16 years had passed. Sure, they had time. It was just an excuse. It's interesting when we think about spiritual priorities, um, sometimes we think that 
the idea of spiritual value is something invisible, it's kind of abstract, and you know, who knows? But really, spiritual priorities play out in real life. And sometimes it's pretty obvious what the priorities are. Sometimes God puts us in either-or situations where uh, you've got to make a choice. With time, it's always like that. You can only be in one place at a time. You have to be here or there. But with money, sometimes we can do a little bit of everything and kind of give the impression that we are prioritizing things. Well, in verse 4, Haggai also talks about this idea of priorities, and he uses a stark contrast here. He says, on the one hand, everyone could see uh, the nice paneled houses. And on the other hand, just probably on the other side of the hill, was the house of God lying desolate a barren skeleton of a building. People could see where the resources were being invested. Priorities were obvious. I want to notice two other things, two other principles here in these verses. First is the thought that adopting eternal priorities is difficult without good examples. Adopting Eternal priorities is difficult without good examples. Now, you may be thinking, where in the world is he getting this, right? Well, look at verse 2, what Haggai says. He says, this people says the time has not yet come. But remember who it is that Haggai is talking to. He's talking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, two of the leaders, now, I'm sure that there was some disappointment about the actions of the people, but really he's addressing the leaders and he's saying, the responsibility lies with you to set a good example. The people are saying they're doing one thing or not doing something. There's a general apathy, but it comes back to the leaders. In verse uh, Verse 4 also, Haggai says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses? It wasn't everybody that was dwelling in paneled houses. It was the people that had the means to do that. The people that were wealthy, the leaders of society were the ones that were dwelling in these houses. And Haggai is pointing his finger at these leaders and saying that it's your actions and it's your attitudes that have led to the apathy of the people. You can imagine the, the common person in Israel at the time thinking, you know, we should really get back to rebuilding the temple. But then they look at their leaders and they think, if they're not going to get busy, why should I? Adopting eternal priorities is difficult without good examples. This may have been part of the difficulty that Susan was facing. Remember her? Susan, uh, she had invested in a wardrobe, maybe to try to uh, keep up appearances, maybe the apartment, maybe the car, same thing. Could be that the school loans, it's because everybody does that, right? And it could be that the people's, her workmates' opinion of her when I said that she was flattered by their suggestion. Could be that their opinion was part of her motivation. Susan, I believe, could use a good example Susan could use somebody at work, maybe a more mature Christian at work, to help guide her through this decision-making process. 
Susan could perhaps use a spiritual mentor at church to help guide her. Adopting eternal priorities is hard without good examples. The second point that I see here in these verses is that adopting spiritual priorities is impossible without God's help. It's impossible without God's help. When um, Haggai addressed the people, I believe that he wanted to encourage them. And look at at verse, um, verse 2. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, right? And then again, uh, just a little while later, thus says the Lord of hosts. It's a, it's a phrase that Haggai uses repeatedly in these two chapters, 14 times, in fact, in two chapters. He doesn't just say the Lord, thus says the Lord, but thus says the Lord of hosts. And this extra phrase transmits the idea of the all-powerful commander of the angelic armies, God who could do anything. Well, if the people looked around, I'm sure that they could come up with even more excuses why they shouldn't do the work. But Haggai is telling them, don't look around, look to God. God is capable of supplying every resource that you need. He's capable of overcoming all the opposition that you may face. God is capable. He's telling the people that they are not capable of adopting eternal priorities by themselves. An example that I I mentioned earlier with Tom, um, it could be that that's his problem. Tom might have had difficulty with the thought that God could take care of his children better than he could. God, the Lord of hosts, could provide for their transportation and their study needs much better than he himself could. It could be that Tom was uh, trusting more in his own efforts than he was the God we claim to serve. It's not easy. Adopting eternal priorities is difficult without good examples, and it's impossible without God's help. I want to pause for just a second here and just invite you to think about situations that you may be facing. If you were to take an inventory of the way that you spend time, what would you conclude are your priorities? Not the ideal, but how does it play out? If you were to look at your bank balance and the way that you spend money, what would a person conclude about the way that you use your discretionary funds? Or stop and think about the example that you set, okay? Uh, I believe everyone in this room is a leader in some capacity or another. It could be a school teacher, and uh, the kids in your classroom are not just learning the content of your lesson plan. They are getting clues about life priorities as you stand and and teach before them? Are you a businessman trying to set the tone for your employees? They're going to figure out pretty quickly what's of real value to you, whether your life actually matches up to your mission statement. And are you a mom or dad? There are kiddos that look up to you for years and years. They look and they want to emulate your actions and your attitudes. Uh, they, they look for clues of what's important to spend money on and what not. 
It's hard uh, to imagine, but they're taking notes, right? Uh, They're comparing the relative value of different things as they live with you. Or I could ask the question also, um, is there something in your life, something right now, that you're trusting God for that is beyond your control? Something that God would have to step in and resolve to such a degree that the other people would say, this had to be from the Lord. That's what Haggai is challenging the people to do. Something that was an enormous task, but that they would have to trust the Lord to fulfill in their lives. Adopting eternal priorities. As uh, Haggai goes on in uh, these verses, verses 5 through 7, I believe that he points to a second principle. And this principle is the idea that besides adopting eternal priorities, we should analyze, analyze temporal circumstances. Analyze temporal circumstances. Or, or in other words, we should look around us and see what God is doing through our circumstances and evaluate whether or not a decision that we've made is a good one or not. Now, this is actually a little different than investment advice that you would get uh, you know, in some other place. Uh, people will tell you, you need to analyze market conditions before you jump in. And here, Haggai is telling the people, after you've made your decision, look around and see what's happening. It's maybe a call for a mid-course correction. But Haggai wants the people to realize that God is an active partner. He can and he does manipulate our circumstances so that we can proceed with a path that is pleasing to him or maybe make that mid-course correction and turn around and pursue one which is more pleasing. So God can step in through our circumstances. We need to analyze our temporal circumstances. In verse 5, Haggai tells the people, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And what I find interesting is in verse 7, he tells them almost exactly the same thing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. These two phrases, uh, these two commands serve as brackets, uh, brackets that will focus attention on what's in between in verse 6. The idea of considering your ways is the idea of analyzing uh, it could be understood as a, as a warning, uh, be careful, or as an exhortation, pay attention to. But the idea of analyzing, I think, is sufficient. When you think about what are the ways that Haggai is telling the people to analyze. Well, he describes, and, and uh, sometimes we think, well, it's just my actions, right? Consider your ways, uh, what you are doing. But I think what Haggai has in mind here are the actions and the environment that the people were working in, everything that was going on around them. He describes these things in verse 6, and he uses five examples, five ironies, as it were, uh, unexpected turns of fate, five things that we could call misfortune, five examples of the Lord withholding blessing from the people. He starts off in verse 6, you have sown much but harvest little. Well, that's misfortune, right? Especially for the Jews at this time, because this time of year, 
they were expecting a, a harvest of grapes and figs, the, part of the staples of their diet. And Haggai tells them, you're not going to have it. It's meager this year because God has withheld that. And he goes on and he says, uh, you eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. I think it's pretty clear. God is working through the circumstances, providing guidance for the people so that they would change course. They were on the wrong path. They needed to turn around, pursue the opposite direction. God was working through circumstances. Now, I do want to add just a caveat here. Um, When we analyze our circumstances, don't become too introspective, right? When you think about the purpose that God has for misfortune, uh, because God has lots of different purposes for misfortune. Sometimes misfortune comes because God wants to deepen our faith. And there are times that misfortune comes because God wants to provide a a broader stage for our witness, for our uh, declaration of our faith in God. And sometimes misfortune comes and we just don't know. We just don't have a clue why it happened. And we probably won't until the afterlife. That's the story of Job, by the way. But misfortune sometimes is used by God as a corrective element for us to change paths. When we stop and analyze what's going on around us, we can sometimes draw the conclusion, the Holy Spirit speaking to our conscience and saying, you're on the wrong path, buddy. You need to turn around. I wonder if this would have been a help for some of the individuals that we talked about. You think about Tom, um, let's just assume that Tom takes the promotion. But within just a, a few weeks, a couple of months, uh, Tom discovers that the stress levels at home have just gone through the roof. Uh, his wife has more and more things to do. He's got less time, less energy. Um, arguments have increased, leaving him even more drained. And the relationship that he hoped to develop with his kids, forget it. You know, they don't see what he's trying to do. And it seems like the relationship has gone from bad to worse. Now, should Tom have taken the promotion? You and I can't answer that question. We can't, really. But Tom can rest assured the fact that the Holy Spirit can manipulate his circumstances and lead him, nudge him into a path that will bring greatest glory to God. Or you can think about Bill. Bill buys the car, right? He buys the car, and um, wouldn't you know it, just a a few weeks later, spins out on some black ice, car winds up with an expensive repair bill. And then to top it off, uh, his son-in-law. Son-in-law loses his job. And when the bank threatens foreclosure, family moves out, moves in with Bill. Well, that's fun, right? fun for about a day, and then uh, time passes, and, you know, stress levels grow again, and Bill is thinking, when will they get out of here? Uh, When will they move on? Son-in-law still looking for work. The overdue notices for Bill start coming in, and Bill has to withdraw 
early withdrawals from his IRAs. Well, at some point, Bill should take stock of the fact that God is capable of manipulating circumstances to get his attention and perhaps to get him to change path. We should analyze our temporal circumstances. The last principle here that um, I see Haggai developing is in verse 8. In verse 8, Haggai gives us the instruction to act to magnify God's glory. Act to magnify God's glory. Verse 8, he says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. There are three action verbs that Haggai is talking about here. Go, bring, rebuild. But if you were to put all three of them into a single package, he's saying go, or he's saying act, obey, right? He's saying do what you can to glorify God. When uh, the Israelites were faced with this task, I'm sure that there were some questions as to whether or not they'd be able to do it. But it was clearly part of God's will. It was clearly part of God's will for the people to have their life revolve around the temple. You can think about the way that Solomon issued his uh, prayer of dedication when the temple was first built, some 400 years earlier. Solomon prayed here in in, uh, chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people, Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Well, for the Israelites, it was clear what God's will was. For Christians, though, we don't have a physical temple that we need to be building. But we do have specific projects that God wants us to engage in. There are initiatives or projects that God lays before us, some of these opportunities Before we cast them aside, we should think, is this a a manner, a way that I can give greater glory to God? God not only presents us with the opportunities, but he also equips us with the time, the resources, the expertise to be able to address these needs. So you could ask yourself the question, is there some place that I should go to give glory to God? Is there something that I should bring to the Lord and dedicate to his service? Is there something that I should build for God's glory? The act of using your faith, depending upon God, can also bring him glory. Despite the, apart from the question of, of uh, the results, just the exercise of your faith can, dist- can demonstrate to people Anybody that's watching, where your allegiance lies, if you're willing to use your time and your money for his glory. God loves you so much that he invites you to participate 
and his projects. But he also loves you too much to allow you to sit idle while projects of his remain undone. God loves us and invites us to participate with him. And the words of Jesus may come to mind at this point. When Jesus spoke with his disciples, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Things that we need, things that we want will be added to you as well. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are indeed the Lord of hosts. We give you thanks that you are capable of doing so much more than we can ask or imagine. And we give you thanks that you have invited us not only to become your sons and daughters, but to work on your behalf for your glory, for your honor. And Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would nudge us, would guide us, would empower us, to do just that, to honor your name. We pray that, like the Israelites, we could respond to your message for guidance. Respond to the thought of putting your priorities first. Respond in faith to the circumstances we see playing out around us. And respond in active work, active deeds, that demonstrate our faith to the watching world. We ask this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.